David Lloyd George, which was one of Britain's greatest prime ministers, once said, the true test of a civilization is the way it treats its old people. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you would open to 1 Timothy 5, 1 Timothy 5, we're going to continue in our study uh, for the next several weeks in uh, Timothy and the Lord willing, Titus. So uh, this week, um, I want to just highlight the fact that this chapter is all about relationships within the family of God. And life really is all about relationships. And many of you know that the best part of life is relationships. And the worst part of life is relationships. Marty has said to me on more than one occasion that business would be simple if you just didn't have customers or employees. (laughs) Right. And families would be wonderful if there was no brothers and sisters and uh, the rest of the equation. However, however, God's design is for us to live in relationships. In 1 Timothy 5, Paul is giving Timothy some very practical advice about maintaining healthy relationships within the family, within God's family called the church. Let's open the narrative in chapter 5, verse 1 of 1 Timothy, verse 1. Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him (laughs) as a father. To the younger men, don't see any of them here, as brothers. To the older women as mothers and the younger women as sisters in all purity. Here's the principle. Every member of God's family should be treated with honor and respect. Every member of God's family should be treated with honor and respect. Now, Timothy is pastoring the church at Ephesus. Paul is in Macedonia, a hundred or so miles north, actually a little bit more than that. That's in northern Greece. And he hasn't seen Timothy in about a year. And so he is writing Timothy a letter, First and Second Timothy, it's going to come later. It's about AD 63, and he's telling him, how the family of God should behave. How do you get along within the family of God, the church of God? Timothy's probably in his late 30s. Paul's probably in his late 50s. Paul is going to be uh, martyred for Christ probably in about four or five years. No one knows that, obviously, at this point in time. There's about a 20-year difference between these two pastors. Timothy has been pastor at this church now for about a year because Paul left him there about 62, and it's about 63 now. So Paul is counseling Timothy on how to treat family members in the church of God. And he basically says, Timothy, treat the members of your church family just like you would treat the members of your own family. Love, sir. Yeah, I know some of you are going, oh, I better upgrade that. (laughs) Timothy was supposed to love, serve, respect, and honor each family member in the family of God, regardless of their position. And Paul says, I'm going to give you kind of four positions within a family. Father, mother, brother, sister. And that culture, the father of the family was the patriarch. And he was accorded vast respect and honor. And he was to be honored in all circumstances. It would have been very difficult for an older man to accept correction from a younger pastor. You know, Timothy was in his 30s and There might have been older men in the church who were 20 years his senior, and they were used to being honored, not corrected. So Paul says, if you're going to correct them, if you need to, appeal to them. Don't correct them harshly, but appeal to them just like you would when you speak to your own father. It meant offering correction in a spirit of deference and not not arrogance. And Paul says to Timothy, treat younger men as brothers, as appreciated and valued brothers. Don't talk down to them just because you're the pastor. They're actually, they were his peer group. Timothy was to treat older women in the same way he would treat his own mother, with kindness and respect and dignity and honor. And he was to treat the younger women like sisters with all purity. And he put, Paul puts that term with all purity because Paul understood that 
and our culture hasn't changed a lot. More pastors leave the ministry due to moral failure than any other cause. So Paul reminds Timothy to view younger women just like you would, let's say, your little sister. Protect them, be an example for them, model for them, treat them in such a way so that you would avoid any hint of impropriety. And I want you to notice that a healthy church has a cross-section of people in it. A wide variety of backgrounds, a wide variety of ages, a wide variety of abilities, socioeconomic background, uh, genders, races, ethnicities, and various levels of maturity. So the family of God is really a diverse family. And when you look at our church family here, you see that. You see brand new Christians. You see people been walking with the Lord for decades and decades and decades. Uh, you see a lot of um, uh, everything from babies to the elderly. And that's really a healthy family. A healthy family, the family of God, has a wide variety of, 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 of diversity. And we really have a tendency as people to restrict our fellowship to people who are like us. Right? That's one of the curses of social media. You only talk to people who agree with you. That's really dangerous. Because if you only talk to people who agree with you, you all share the same blind spots. And you really, one of the values of having a diverse viewpoint, especially in the family of God, is that it broadens your point of view and your perspective. As a matter of fact, we can probably learn more from people who are not like us. Especially our church members who are needy and vulnerable. God has significant interest in how a society treats its vulnerable members. Even the secular world understands this. David Lloyd George, which was one of Britain's greatest prime ministers, once said, the true test of a civilization is the way it treats its old people. And if you evaluate our civilization by that metric, we're not doing too well. In our culture, unfortunately, old people and those who are helpless are way too often neglected or even abused. And God himself has promised to protect the weak, the outcasts, the widows, and the orphans. Psalm 149.6 says the Lord protects the strangers. He supports the fatherless and the widow. By the way, I got these wrong, so I gave them to Rob wrong. Austin's fixed them for me. So the first one, the Lord protects the strangers. That's Psalm 149.6 for those of you doing a cross check. And then the last one is Deuteronomy 27.19. Cursed is he who distorts the justice due to an alien. This is God cursing someone who distorts the justice due to an alien Orphan and widow. That's Deuteronomy 27, 19. So the Bible especially highlights the value and the vulnerability of widows. Jesus himself provided for widows. I want you to remember the incident that occurred in a little village called Nain in northern Israel. Remember that there was a widow and she had an only son. And that son had died. And as a result of that, she was left destitute because her husband had already died. And her son was her sole means of support. I'm not going to turn around. Some of you <laughs> pray for him. So God stops, I mean, Jesus, God, stops the funeral procession and does what? Raises that dead son from the grave, right? Not only to demonstrate his deity, which he did, but very practically, he gave her her son back since she was the sole means of support for her. She had no other economic livelihood other than her son at that point in time. So it not only demonstrated that he was the Lord, but it demonstrated his love and care for this widowed mother. Years later, you'll probably remember in the, in the village of Joppa on the seacoast, there was a woman named Dorcas or Tabitha. And she was well known for her numerous good needs. As far as we can tell, she was probably a widow herself. She sewed clothing for destitute widows, and when she had died, they brought out all the wardrobes. She had a very, she was a seamstress, and all the widows were showing Peter everything that she had, uh, had created for them. And she had died. Peter was called, and by the power of God, he raised her from the dead. Interesting, that's the second resurrection in the New Testament that benefited a widow. When Jesus was crucified, he saw his widowed mother, Mary, what? Standing by the cross. And he commanded his cousin, the Apostle John, to care for his mother. And John took Mary into his own home that very day. So clearly God cares about the widow, the vulnerable in his church family. The book of James tells us that our religion should not just be with words, but also with deeds. 
A genuine believer demonstrates their faith, not just by what they say, but their acts of love and mercy towards the needy, James 1.27. This is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father. And you listen to that phrase and you go, man, he's going to say something profoundly theological, this deep philosophical truth, pure and undefiled religion. And what does he say? Visit orphans and widows in their distress. That's pretty basic. We can do that. And to keep oneself unstained by the world. So Paul, now in 1 Timothy 5, is going to begin an exposition about widows that lasts 13 verses. It's the longest single section on a particular topic in the book, which is interesting in itself. It seems as though there was a problem with the behavior of some of the younger widows in the Ephesian church that prompted Paul to write this section. And I'm just going to give you a high-level overview, and then we're going to unpack it. There are, there are several categories of widows that Paul's talking about in these 13 verses. Verses 3 and 5 discuss what Paul calls widows indeed. These are widows who are in fact destitute, and they do not have family members to provide for them. They are alone, all alone. And the church is commanded to provide financial assistance for those widows. Verses 4, 8, and 16 review the cases of widows who do have family members who are available to help. And Paul commands those family members to step up and take responsibility for their needy relatives. And the church is not to provide financial assistance for them because their family members are supposed to do that. Verses 6 to 7 discuss widows who live for pleasure rather than for the Lord. And Paul says you're not to provide financial assistance for those who refuse to follow Jesus. Verses 9 and 10 review the case of older widows who have pledged themselves to the Lord's service for the rest of their lives. And the church is to provide financial support for this group. And then verse 15, 11 through 15 commands younger widows to remarry, raise children, manage their own home, and mind their own business. The church is not to provide financial assistance in this case. So we're going to unpack this. This is pretty complicated. Before I started studying this, if you just said there's five categories of widows in this 13 verses, I'd have said, ah, really? But then when you study it, it's amazing what you can unpack from the Word of God. So before we do that, I want you to understand the social context of ancient society. In that era, economic options for widows did not exist. Honorable employment outside the home really did not exist, and there was no social safety nets. There was no state institutions uh, to provide for a widow's needs apart from her immediate family. There was no social security. There was no disability programs. There was no life insurance, no retirement savings, uh, no government social security savings net, etc., etc. A woman's legal, social, and economic security came from her relationship with her father first, and secondly, her relationship from her husband. And when her husband died, she was most of the time left financially destitute because he was the breadwinner and she didn't have any economic opportunity to go outside the home and earn an honorable living. The only solution for her practically was if her sons were old enough to help farm the land that her husband had inherited from his family. Remember in that era, land was passed down from father to son, from father to son. So you could inherit a farm as a widow, but if you couldn't farm it, it didn't do you a lot of good. So if she had to have sons that are old enough to farm that land, she could have a form of substances. Other than that, when her husband died, most of the time, she became very, very vulnerable and financially uh, defenseless. Widows are most often portrayed in the Bible as the most defenseless members of society along with orphans. And God is very, very, very concerned about widows and orphans in his family. Verse 3. We're going to now talk about the widows who Paul says are widows indeed. And Paul commands Timothy in verse 3. Honor widows who are widows indeed. Verse 5. Now, she who is a widow indeed and who has been left alone has fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. Here's the principle. We are commanded to help godly widows in our church family who genuinely need our help. We are commanded to help godly widows in our church family who genuinely need our help. The Greek word for widow here is cherot, C-H-E-R-A, and it means to be bereft, bereft. And it implies a sense of loss, and of literally being left all alone. 
Uh, the Indo-European root word for widow means to be empty, to be empty. And if that doesn't put a knife in your heart, then you need to get the heart pumping again here. Now, this word widow in this context does not necessarily mean she is left alone because her husband has died. Many, many widows in that culture were left because her husband had divorced her or had deserted her. And in the church, that occurred because many, many times the woman came to Christ first. The husband did not convert. And at some point in time, he said, I can't put up with this. I'm not marrying, staying married to a godly woman who makes me feel bad about my sinful state. So Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, if you're in an unequal marriage and you come to Christ and your unbelieving husband decides to leave, let them go. You can't stop that, right? So she's been deserted. So some of these widows, which means to be bereft or left alone, not necessarily because of death, but because of divorce or because of desertion. Adultery was at least as common in that era as it is today. So divorce was pretty prevalent, unfortunately, as well. So when Paul uses the word widow indeed, he means someone who is desolate and, and, and indicates that for whatever reason, she literally has no one to help her. So either she had no children or grandchildren, or if she did, the family members are not available, are on site or available to assist her. So a widow indeed, as Paul defines it, is a widow in need, right? The church is to assist poor widows, not rich widows. And furthermore, Paul says a widow that the church should help is a widow with a track record of spiritual devotion to God. It says that she is a widow indeed and who has been left all alone, has fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers night or day. So she's all alone and her only hope is God himself. She talks with God constantly and she trusts him to meet her needs because there's no one else. She is materially impoverished and spiritually rich. Biblical example of this, probably the best one, is the prophetess Anna in Luke 2. She's 84 years old. She was married for seven years. Her husband had died after seven years of marriage. It says she spent the rest of her life in the temple doing what? Fasting and praying pretty much night and day around the clock. She had devoted herself to the Lord. She was a widow indeed, as Paul would define it. Humanly alone, no children, materially poor, physically dependent, but spiritually intimate with God because she talked with him night and day. Powerful, powerful testimony. And the Lord allowed her and the prophet Simeon to see the, uh, the salvation of Jesus Christ when he came in the eighth day to become circumcised. So Paul commands that the local church honor these widows. And honor not only implies respect, it also implies financial aid. Later on in verse 17 of this verse, uh, Paul is going to use the word honor in, in, in respect to elders who do teaching, and he implies both respect but also financial support for elders in church, and that would include widows. So all godly widows are to be respected, but not all widows are to be given financial assistance. Verse 4, But any, if any widow has children or grandchildren, they the families, must learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. Verse 8. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Verse 16. But if any woman who is a believer has dependent widows, she must assist them, and the church must not be burdened, so that it may assist those who are widows indeed. Now, Paul's going to give you a specific set of sequences here. Let's get to the principle first. Charity really does begin at home. Providing for your own family is one proof that your faith in God is real. Charity really does begin at home. Providing for your own family is one proof that your faith in God is real. So Paul now is discussing Widows in the church family who have family members that are available to a sister. And he commands these family members, prove your faith in Christ, demonstrate your faith by providing for the needs of your parents and grandparents. 
After all, they raised you, right? So this business of ungrateful children or grandchildren, that's not biblical in the slightest. When God gave the Ten Commandments to Israel from Mount Sinai, He commanded in Exodus 20, verse 12, Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. In essence, don't claim to love your heavenly Father in heaven while you neglect your parents or your grandparents on earth. That doesn't wash. That does not wash. You're going to demonstrate your love for God by caring for your parents. And the first in line to care for a destitute widow is not the church, it's not the state, it's the family. And we have a lot of disobedient children and grandchildren in this culture. And it's a moral outrage. She raised you or your parents. And the notion that you don't have a societal and a social and a familial obligation to the people that raised you. I know there's circumstances, everyone can come up with it with a a specific exception. I get it. I get it. You can say, Brad, you don't understand my family. I know that. I'm talking about a general principle here. If we had families who stepped up the plate and did their moral obligation, we would not have the welfare system we have today. We wouldn't need it because we would be taking care of business. Now, the word provide here, very interesting word. He says, you are obligated to provide for your own household. The word provide means to think ahead. It means to see needs in advance. The word provision, pro, means forward, okay? And vision is to see. So provision means to see forward, to see ahead. It means to think ahead about what your family members will need in the future. And that's probably not what they want in the future, right? Those of you who have raised children know that you as the parent, your job is to look ahead as to what your children will need, correct? Not necessarily what they want. By the way, those of you that are raising aged parents, same thing applies. You have to look ahead as to what they need, and it may not be what they want. I get that. But when your parents get old enough, you become the responsible party especially if they have dementia or other kinds of impairments at that point. That requires a lot of prayer. It requires an enormous amount of wisdom to care for family members. And it requires a great deal of energy because caregiving is exhausting. Paul now is going to list the family members with caregiving responsibilities, and he just lists them in order of priority. Verse 4 says, number one on the list is children and grandchildren. You're the first line of provision for aged parents who are destitute. If there's no children or grandchildren, then the next nearest male relative is obligated. And that could be brothers, nephews, cousins, etc. What does it say in verse 8? If anyone does not provide for his own, especially those of his own household. So the male relative after the kids and the grandkids is the next in line. And if there are no male relatives in line, then the closest female relative is obligated to step up. Verse 16, if there is any woman who's a believer and has dependent widows, she must assist them. So if this destitute widow has sisters, aunts, nieces, etc., and there's no male relative and there's no kids or grandkids, then that relative is next in line to care so that the church's resources are available for the widow who literally has no one. No family, zip. So the, the general principle there is pretty obvious. Family cares for family. Yes? I didn't say you'd like it. I didn't say they were nice. I didn't say they would appreciate it. I didn't say it was going to be easy. Some of them you say, Jesus, if you love them that much, you take them home to heaven, you deal with them. <laughs> Family's hard. Yes? yes? We're just keeping it real here. All right. Those who claim to follow Jesus have an obligation to act like Jesus and love like Jesus loved. Paul says, even the pagans care for their own. How could you who claim to follow Jesus, the author of love, not care for your own? He says it's, it's despicable. You're worse than an infidel. You're worse than an unbeliever if you refuse basic loving care for your own family. Now, 
Paul examines the case of the widow who has not fixed her hope on God, but who has followed her passion for pleasure. Look at verse 6. But she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. And I can hear some of you saying, Brad, I'm, I'm, I'm not getting this. How come there's so much emphasis on widows? The guys are all dead. I'm serious. Women outlived men by seven years today. They outlived them by a whole lot more back then. If you survived childbirth, he was probably going to die before you will. The church had a lot of widows. That's just demography. Verse 6, but she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. So this kind of a widow is in direct contrast to the woman in verse 5. The widow in verse 5 has fixed her hope on the Lord, and this woman has given her life over to pleasure. You know, it's interesting. To have pleasure in life is a healthy thing. To live for pleasure is clearly an unhealthy thing, right? The crucial question for all of us is, is what is the source of your pleasure in life? What do you hunger for? What satisfies you? The things of God or the pleasures of the world? The widow in verse 5 obviously is fixing her hope on the Lord. And the widow in verse 6 is trading her life for, it says, wanton pleasure. And wanton means shameless or lustful. It literally describes a person who is fully committed to a life of self-centered pleasure and who is not particular about the source of that pleasure. They, they literally become slaves to pleasure. We would say they're addicted to that. And when you're addicted, you become promiscuous. Not necessarily sexually promiscuous. You become promiscuous in the sense that you're indiscriminate. You want pleasure of any and all kinds. And of course, we have a culture today that has sold their soul for what? The pleasures of this world. Now, Paul says this widow might be physically alive, but she's spiritually dead. And by the way, that's true for men as well, obviously. She has no desire for the Lord, but only for the things of this life. Transition over to verse 9 about another category of widow. Verse 9, a widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man. Verse 10, having a reputation for good works. And if she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted those in distress, and if she has devoted herself to every good work, and don't you get tired listening to that verse. I mean, you read that and you go, wow, those Energizer batteries really better be working. Right? This is a very Proverbs 31 sort of a description here. Now, there's a couple of different interpretations of this verse. I might as well just put them on the table with you. Some scholars teach that when Paul says the list of widows, it's the list for financial assistance. And that could be well be true. And if that's true, then no widow would qualify for church assistance unless they were at least 60, right? Because he said you're not going on the list unless you're 60. Other commentators believe that the list refers to an official group of widows who had taken a pledge to remain single and were given specific spiritual responsibilities in the local church family as a result of that. It doesn't seem that Paul is advocating that Destitute widows should be refused assistance simply because they're not yet 60. That doesn't appear to be the case. And verse 11 to 12 seems to indicate that this particular list of widows had made a pledge to God that they would remain unmarried in order to be available to serve the local church, which seems to be the case. So Paul says, we're going to give a, write a list of a sample, if you will, of requirements that had to be in evidence before a widow could be added to this roster of women who served in the church and received assistance. Widows on the list had to be at least 60. Now, in the Roman world, first century, if you survived childhood, and many, many didn't, and you lived to age 20, if you made it to age 20, the median life expectancy in the Roman world was 55. You had about 35 years to go. The life expectancy at birth was about 35. But many, 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 many died in infancy. So if you made it to 20, the median life expectancy was 55, which means half the adult population in Rome died before 55, half the adult population died after 55. Today in the United States, the median age of death is about 78.6 on average, which means half the population is going to be dead before then, 
half will live somewhere beyond that. So at 60, in the Roman world, 60 was considered old. Sorry. That's what it is. Furthermore, at 60 years old, most of us in that era would be blind and toothless at 60. We have a lot of appliances helping us out at this stage, right? Thank God for appliances. But at 60 years old, this widow's children were probably already raised and gone, and remarriage was probably unlikely because most of the males at that age were gone as well. So she had more time. She was more available to serve within the local body. As we age, we tend to focus less on earthly pleasures, and we tend to focus more on spiritual problems because the clock is ticking and we're paying attention to that a little bit better. So furthermore, widows at age 60 would probably have acquired a bit of wisdom, more than a bit, and perspective that was worth passing on to the next generation. I'll tell you, our church here has multiple groups with widows in it, and they're some of the most powerful spiritual people I know. If you want something done, you go talk to an elderly widow who's been walking with Jesus for decades. I'm telling you, the wisdom that comes out of their pores, go hang out with them. Ask them, talk with them, listen to them, pray. They know their king, and they have the scar tissue to prove it. I can't mint say enough, our elderly, male or female, we, we need to honor them. And one of the ways you honor them is by spending time with them and listening. They have stories to tell that can change your world for the better. And when you listen to commentators and the news flow and all this other stuff, it's patently clear that some of them should be listening to their grandparents. Pretty obvious. If someone's got scar tissue from life and they've learned some stuff from it, you probably ought to pay attention and save you some scar tissue as well. So they have to be 60. Next, these widows who are making this pledge for this service obligation and financial support have to have been the wife of one man. So that literally translates, she, she must have been a one-man woman. And of course, some commentators literally interpret this that she can only be married once, even if her first husband had died. Of course, if that's the case, then elders in the church are held to the same standard since they were required to be the husband of one wife. They were supposed to be a one-woman man. And if that's true, then neither Paul nor Timothy qualified to be elders because they were not married. So last week we discussed that it seems as though this requirement is mandating sexual and moral purity regardless of marital status. And I think that's probably biblically more sound at that point in time. For her to perform spiritual ministry in the church, this group of widows, like the elders, had to have lived lives that were above reproach. She also had to have a reputation for good works, and Paul is going to give you just five examples. If she had children, she had to raise them responsibly, which indicates that she had learned how to serve inside her home. Secondly, she must be hospitable, which means she's showing care for her community. When it says she must have watched the saints' feet, that's an idiom. In that era, everybody walked barefoot or sandals, and they all walked on of course, sidewalks that were washed every night with high power. They walked on dirt, right? And so that, you know, when, when you came to somebody's house, you had dirty, dusty feet, and hosts would arrange for someone to wash their guests' feet because you laid down by the side of the table and you ate on an elbow, right? So your feet were next to somebody's face, the other side. So you really needed to wash the feet, right? So they did. So washing the saints' feet would indicate that this widow had a a history of humble service within her church family. Fourth, it says she assisted those in distress. She had a heart for people in distress, those who were hurting in special need, and she devoted herself to every good work. That just indicates that doing good was part of her habit pattern. It wasn't done occasionally. She did good deeds just as a matter of course. She had a history of service to others that demonstrated her love for Jesus. Paul says that's a special class of widow that the church should support, and they have specific job descriptions that they have covenanted to do before the Lord. In contrast to that, apparently the Ephesian church had a bit of a problem, more than a little bit of a problem with younger widows, verse 11, but refused to put younger widows on the list. For when they feel sensual desires in disregard of Christ, they want to get married, verse 12. 
thus incurring condemnation because they have set aside their previous pledge. At the same time, they also learn to be idle as they go around from house to house, and not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies talking about things not proper to mention. Therefore, I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach, for some have already turned aside to follow Satan. Here's the principle. Help that encourages irresponsible behavior is harmful. Some requests for help should be refused. Help that encourages irresponsible behavior is harmful. Some requests for help should be refused. It seems that the church at Ephesus had more requests for help than they had resources. Some things never change. Is that true today? There's always more requests for help than there is capital available to help. So the situation seems to be this. The over 60 age group of widows had made a pledge to God that they would remain unmarried so that they would be able to devote the rest of their life to serving the Lord and the Lord's people, right? When a younger widow was left all alone due to death, divorce, or desertion, she would naturally experience sorrow and loss and grief. And in her grief, she might be tempted to take a pledge to remain single for the rest of her life as well so she could serve the Lord with his older group of widows. I'll never remarry again. I'm done with men. I'm going to devote the... I know some of you are going, I'm there now. <laughs> and I'm not even 60. And I'm so done, right? I can hear it. Yeah, some of the men in your life you should be done with. I mean, let's get real. I'm going to devote the rest of my life to serving the Lord. So she'd be put in the financial support list with the church and she'd begin to serve with the older widows group. And over time, that day-to-day knife-in-the-heart grief would become less intense and she would desire to remarry and be in a relationship. By the way, there's nothing wrong with remarriage after being left alone, right, in the Lord. But in this case, she'd already made a vow to the Lord to remain unmarried. So she would be free to serve the Lord. And of course, when you make a promise to God, he expects you to keep it. And there's consequences if you fail to keep that, Deuteronomy 23, 21. When you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it. For it would be sin in you, and the Lord your God will surely require it of you. You shall be careful to perform what goes out from your lips. Sidebar, it is very, very easy to treat your promises to God casually and say, well, God may not have amnesia. I mean, I know he'll remember what I promised, but he's a God of mercy and grace. God takes great weight on speech integrity. What comes out of your mouth matters. And it says, don't delay. It doesn't say, we're assuming you're going to do it. It says, when you promise it, take care of it. Don't say, God, manana. Obedience is immediate. So Paul is basically saying, I don't want these younger widows in the heat of grief and sorrow to make a sacred promise to God and then renounce it as soon as an eligible man shows up. Right? I mean, now there's a man in the room, so God, I'll get to you later. Right now, i got to go after Henry, or whatever his name is, right? I know some of you women know exactly what I'm talking about. you got girlfriends like that, you know? Anytime a male shows up, their brain stops working. It's just pathetic. By the way, males are even worse. Really, really worse. Estrogen. Brain goes brain dead. Anyway. So, breaking your promise to God is a sin. Here's a practical application. Be very careful about making major decisions or commitments during periods of high emotion. Be very careful. And that could be stress. It could be grief. It could be loss. It could even be euphoria, right? When you're in the middle of intense emotion. The number one thing you need is time. Time is your friend. Time will season your perspective. 
When you're in the middle of intense emotion, you should not be making major commitments. That's why falling in love can be so dangerous. It's okay to fall in love. Just don't make any decisions when you're in that state of temporary madness. <laughs> Give it time. Give it time. Season the perspective. I have a very strong belief that everybody should not marry until they see everyone through at least four seasons. They may not do well in the winter. You don't know that, right? Okay. So when you're in the middle of high emotion, Paul is saying when you're grieving a divorce, a desertion, or a death, don't make any major commitments. Get wise counsel. Pray a lot. Give it time. It'll season your perspective. So this younger woman widow right now is conflicted. She's made a pledge to God, but her physical and emotional desire for marriage is now at war with this. She's made a rash vow, really, when she was in a very emotional state, and now she wants to break free from that promise. And the word here, interesting, the word sensual desire, it's literally a picture of a young animal trying to break free from a yoke. They're yoked like a young oxen or a young donkey, and they're becoming increasingly agitated trying to break free from the yoke. Well, the yoke here is the promise they made to God. And now they're trying to get out of that promise, and they're becoming agitated about it. And it literally implies a desire to achieve a result without regard for what is right. You and I know people, none of you in this room would ever do this, but you and I know people who want something so bad, and they get fixed on it, it may be to get married, it may be to move, it may be to, whatever it is, but their hearing aid stops working. They refuse to listen to your godly advice, right? Have you run anybody like that when they get locked on something? That's the picture here. Everyone can see a train wreck coming but them. And they go ahead and make the decision, whatever it is, and you know within months or years there's going to be broken pieces to pick up all over the tracks. Paul is saying, look, the picture is this young woman in the period of emotion made a decision, a commitment to serve the Lord, and she's now resenting it because the vow of God that she had made, is vow to God, is preventing her from remarrying. And if she remarries, she will have set aside her previous, previous pledge, which means either one of two things. She'll either abandon the promise she made to God to stay unmarried. By the way, remarriage is fine, but breaking a vow to God is not fine. Or even worse, the desire to remarriage takes such precedent that it destroys your faith in Christ and she would even remarry an unbeliever, right? Remember, there's a lot of false teachers in Ephesus and they are teaching that you can do that. They were marrying on the basis of sensual desire, not necessarily in the Lord. So Paul says, look, you can protect the widows in your church, the younger widows, by not letting them make promises they should not make at that time time, right? So not all help is helpful, right? He says, don't put them on the list. So don't put them in a position to protect them, protect them so they will not break their pledge and dishonor God. He says, I want them to remain single. I want them to wait on the Lord. If the Lord wants them to remarry, they'll be available for that. And then he adds a second reason not to put people on a support list. He said, they learn to be idle. Does this sound like our culture? Some of it, too much something for nothing does not build diligence. It unfortunately teaches idleness, and in some cases, multi-generational idleness. So the first problem this young widow has is desire for a man, and the second one is just simple immaturity. They're put in the financial support list, and now they have more free time. And Paul says, we're having trouble in the church because these younger widows, and apparently there were a number of them, were learning to be idle. You know, Titus tells us that one of the jobs of the older women in the church is to teach the younger women how to be pure, godly, sensible, love their husbands, love their children, manage their own house, help the orphans, the prisoners, the sick, the needy, etc. So be of general service. And these older widows were supposed to be models of virtue. And the 60-year-old crowd plus apparently was doing that extremely well. Apparently some of these younger widows were going from house to house to assist the poor and the sick and help the kids, et cetera, et cetera. And they were inside a lot of houses. And they were hearing a lot of very personal information about a lot of people in the church family. And apparently they didn't have a maturity to deal with the sensitive information. 
At best, they were idle and wasting a lot of time. And Paul says, at worst, they were busybodies and gossips. And that is creating a lot of havoc in the church. Gossip is lethal to fellowship. It really will kill fellowship. So one of the things that's imperative for us is practical application. You need to know that when we put prayer requests available, it's for our family. That doesn't get posted to the wide world. Because prayer requests are very personal. When you write prayer requests down, that's your heart. I mean, this is a very intimate, but we're family in this group. And so the fact that we trust each other to say, pray for me because of X, Y, D, that is sacred. You don't still go talking to blah, blah, blah about that issue. That's sacred. That's holy. That's before the Lord. And people who write down prayer requests are basically saying, I'm trusting this family, man of family, to bring that before the Lord and not go blathering it about, et cetera, et cetera. So it was creating a lot of havoc in the church in Ephesus. And Paul says it's actually giving Satan an opportunity to divide us and to lead people astray. So he says the solution is for younger widows to remarry in the Lord, raise their families, and manage their own families well. You know, mind your own business. Stop being a budinsky. Stop gossiping. Just take care of your own life. And I know some of you are going, well, that remarrying business, that requires another person. Uh, it does. That says, whatever your future goals are or aren't, you will remain dependent on the Lord. Yes? By the way, if you're married, you will remain dependent on the Lord. Staying married requires dependency on the Lord, just like staying single. There is no difference. For folks that think marriage solves problems, you have twice the problems and half the time. It doesn't solve problems. It can create more problems, right? So Paul is basically counseling singles and marrieds, stay dependent on the Lord. Maintain your fellowship with the Lord Wait on him. In the meanwhile, take care of your own business. So Paul has told Timothy, look, this is very practical. You're to honor and respect everyone in God's family. He's given Timothy some pretty specific guidelines about who to help and who not to help and why. Because giving assistance to God's people requires insight. By the way, you can get that by asking in James and God wants us to be involved in the lives of his family. By the way, if you have family members in need, it's going to require a lot of wisdom to know how to help them without hurting. Sometimes giving somebody something for nothing does not help. It creates more problems. Sometimes you can help them by saying no. Right? So when we talk about rendering assistance, it's not real simple about, well, just give them money. There are family members that you have that really don't need money. They're not going to make wise decisions with it. Now, in some cases, they do. But in some cases, you'd much be better off paying their rent for them, not giving them the cash. Some people can't deal with that. So there's an enormous amount of, you know, when you really get down to the rubber meets the road, there's, it requires a lot of wisdom to know how to render assistance to family members in need. And as we age, we're going to run into a lot more family members with need. And the Lord wants us to be involved, but he wants us in prayer first so he can instruct us how to really help. Any help that causes them to draw away from the Lord is obviously not help. I mean, that's spiritually disaster at that point. Rudyard Kipling once wrote, A family is a clan held together with the glue of love and the cement of mutual respect. A family is shelter from the storm, a friendly port when the waves of life become too wild. No person is ever alone who is a member of a family. We who are followers of Jesus, have been given the great privilege of being adopted into God's family. And the beautiful thing is it's a forever family. Once you're adopted into God's family, you can't lose us, right? Because our commitment is not what keeps it together. 
the Father's love that brought us into the family through Jesus the Son. And God says, because you're a member of my family, I have standards for how you will treat each other. And that includes honor and respect and care and wisely rendering assistance when it's needed. Manna is a family that God has called together, and it's a great privilege to do life together. We say that, do life together. This is just a little piece of what that involves. It's a good thing to know that God not only has adopted us, but His love, His love, is the glue that keeps us together. Let's summarize, and then I'll ask Tom to come up and uh, lead us in our prayer and praise time. Uh, point one, every member of God's family should be treated with honor and respect. Two, we are commanded to help godly widows in our church who genuinely need our help. By the way, it doesn't mean only godly widows. It basically, I'm using that because that's what this lesson is about. There's other orphans and people here that need, obviously, assistance as well. Number three, charity really does begin at home. Providing for your family is one proof that your faith in God is real. By the way, it's not the only proof, but it's one evidence, one proof that your faith in God is real. And lastly, help that encourages irresponsibility is not helpful, it's harmful. Some requests should be refused, and it takes the wisdom of God to know how to navigate that in the best possible way. Does that make sense so far? Okay, I think we have enough to work on between now and next week. Thank you all uh, for coming. Lord willing, next week we'll be in 1 Timothy 6. And so please read ahead. Uh, I love you all. Now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.